0: Morning, evening,
1: perhaps good afternoon.
0: It's a time to think.
1: It is a time to think. Morning Whatever evening, time.
0: That's uh, morning, noon, and night. I pour out my request before the Lord or something wow. like that, right? That's where you morning are, evening came from. You
1: are covering every base, Josh.
0: You don't need to listen to us though, morning, noon, and night, like once nope. a week. Or, that would be
1: cultish behavior. In fact,
0: some people are like, I haven't listened to you in six months, but I binged you. And I'm like, that's a weird thing. <laughs> I hope it was helpful. Also hope that I'm... Stan
1: not, and Ann, I'm looking at you. It's am uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> ringing in your ears as you try to go to sleep. Um, no, but it's been cool to see just how, how different people have listened to different episodes at different times. And uh, maybe this would be a little three-part series that's kind of, I don't know if I'm going to say comes out of nowhere, but the wind blows where he wishes. Um, this oh. is not directly an issue that's cropped up in the culture that affects the church. It's not even directly an issue that's some kind of... Uh, divisive issue currently right. in our churches just yeah we were talking about something. using your gifts at the end of a church series and spiritual gifts came up and so we spent some time talking about who the holy spirit is because he is a who not yes. an it so we said who is he and what does he do for believers in all times and all locations because yep. so many times we talk about spiritual gifts we start with what does he not do anymore And we only argue in the the kind of periphery of what does he do or not do anymore, rather than saying, who is he? And so after finishing the book of Luke, we said, who is, we said, who is Jesus? Now we're saying, who is the Holy Spirit? And then in our second episode, if you haven't listened to that one, we talked about some different definitions of terms like cessationism or continuationism or charismaticism. uh, And what do those terms mean? And we try to be charitable in defining those in terms of, um, cessationists believing that gifts have uh, ceased, cess ceased to the degree that they would be maybe Cessed. located yes. in a particular person. So, secessionists yeah. would disagree that Chris has the gift of healing, that the, that the Lord may still heal as Chris prays, but sure. that it's not Chris that has the gift of healing. Whereas, continuationists are going to be more inclined to say, the Lord works through Chris, who has been given a gift of healing. That gift has continued, um, and, and but even in that, we, we differentiated between healing as a gift and language gifts. And we sure. didn't we didn't ever get to language gifts. Yeah, which um, is but,
1: why we broke down another episode here.
0: Right. And so this this last episode is about language gifts, and um, what do we do with 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? What do oh, we goodness. do with tongues and prophecy? And we, at the outset... We're going to admit that we're going to give our best shot to this. Um, but as Chris has said before, these are tertiary issues. We're going to tell you what our tertiary meaning third level. Uh, we're going to tell you what our understanding is of First Corinthians 12 through 14.
1: And there is um, differentiation even within our own church over this right. issue with people we love and know. And so you may be one of those people that differs, you know in some capacity here. We still love you. And uh, we still want we, you to love us. Yeah, so. we want
0: you to love us too. That's all I want, Grace. I want to be loved. And if someone has Would time: Would you
1: rather be loved or feared?
0: If someone has time, I'd like to be liked.:
1: In the words of Michael Scott, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words to live by.
0: Yeah, what other words from do you Michael live Gary by Scott? From Michael Scott:
1: um, Strike one, Fool me once, strike one, fool me twice, <laughs> strike three. That's another one I, I live oh, by. Oh, that's
0: good. So, rather loved or feared? And where are the
1: turtles? That's I, another one.
0: I don't want anyone to fear me. I think fear is reserved for the Lord. I
1: do. What if I told you I'm afraid of you?
0: Then we would get back into some counseling territory. Okay. Or we need to All work right. through
1: those. I'm not those afraid issues. of you, Josh. Good. Yeah, good.
0: Uh, so speaking of fear like I said this is this is a, a podcast that' I'm, I don't know that I'm eager to talk about it because there is so much dissension um, in the yeah. past number of years uh, and but what I am eager to do is is to show out of first Corinthians 12 through 14 what we think is clear um, what we think is uh, helpful and then maybe end by what are the practicalities of using yep. some of these things so first Corinthians 12 through 14 is gonna be where uh, Prophecy and tongues, the language gifts, are located, and it's going to be the locus of, of much of the conversation about...
1: A plague of locus, in fact.
0: Yeah, the locus, no T. Because <laughs> uh, really, outside of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you have 1 Thessalonians 5, I believe, which says, do not despise prophecy, but right. test everything. You have first John four, which says, beloved test every spirit, but that seems to be more talking in terms of demonic. Christian anti-Christ. versus non-Christian. Yeah, exactly. So really prophecy and, and this conversation gets super focused on these three chapters.
1: Correct.
0: Um and but they're not three isolated chapters. They're three chapters that are happening in the context of a book. Yes. So Chris, can you give us in like three minutes? A three minutes. Who is Corinth and what is happening up until chapter 12?
1: All right. So, uh, I, I speak as one who has some authority and experience on the matter. My master's thesis um, had a component in it that was related to the historical uh, character qualities of the church at Corinth, uh, which was involved with culture and all that stuff. So, um, I, I do want to suggest that what I have to say here you should take seriously. I'm listening. Okay. So, um, the, the, the the city of Corinth was a city that was very metropolitan in nature. Um, it was populated uh, through dispersive efforts uh, on the part of the Roman Empire uh, to take people from different lands and locate them in, in this one very urban center. Um, there was a lot of trade that took place there. A lot of people kind of came in and out. And it would have been comparable, I would say, You know, maybe even think of a place like um, Hong Kong. Okay. You know, I don't want to just locate it in, you know, the United States here, but think of like a Hong Kong um, or, you know, perhaps a New York City or something. We have all kinds of different people coming together. And so as as you go and, and you think, you know, in our, in our 21st century Western context, we think, oh, we're going to choose this church. We're going to choose that church. I'm going to go to this church that does this or this church that does that. We have churches that, you know, even perhaps there is a Korean-speaking only church, a Spanish-speaking only church, that kind of a thing in the first century you're dealing with a city a large city a large metropolitan city with a lot of different people in it and Paul has come to the city and there is a church
0: yeah you choose to go to the church that you
1: go right. to. to the church at Corinth now you know maybe there were some different house churches that existed but they were under the same authority the apostle Paul and everything and even though there were schisms that took place because there was a differentiation in leadership uh, between those who were calling themselves super apostles, pitting themselves against Paul and elsewhere, elsewhere, you know, just kind of going at it with their own, you know, personal brands, uh, the reality was the church at Corinth was the church at Corinth. And so what you have here is a community. You have a, a community of believers that was most likely comprised of a lot of very different individuals, and we can tell this. Because the way that Paul writes to the church at Corinth is he writes to people who look down on others on the basis of certain social classes and everything like that. So the church at Corinth was metropolitan in nature. The For church instance, at Corinth, the,
0: the mm-hmm. chapter just prior to our section we're talking about had to do with, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, rich folk taking yes. the Lord's Supper before the poor folk got off work. Yes. And then the poor folk showed up and the rich folk were drunk. yeah. And so you have social classes yep. where the, the people who did not have to work as long of days or at all were taking advantage of a sacrament and therefore Correct. demeaning, looking down on another social class.
1: Yes, exactly. So we can't just think of the Corinthian church as being a church that was only Greek speaking. We can't, you know, I, I would, I would, in a lot of ways, think about, you know, perhaps we have a, a church that's filled with a lot of very wealthy Americans and we have some, some you know, uh, migrant workers who might come up from Mexico or something. And you think, well, the, the American, the wealthy Americans would use all the stuff, all the resources, and then the Mexican believers would come and they would feel left out, of course, because it was already used up. So
0: Yeah, not just a gap between upper middle class and lower middle class. Right. But we're talking rich and poor. Rich
1: and poor, uh, different cultures, different languages, different, you know, ethnicities, these types of things. So it was mm-hmm. very, it was different, okay? Uh, and so... As we approach the church at Corinth, we see a church that was in serious distress um, socially. It was in serious social distress because what had happened, not only was there, I guess, factionalization on the part of um, you know different ethnicities and social classes within the church itself, but there was factionalization that was then taking place in relationship to leadership. So you see 1 Corinthians opening up. The Apostle Paul talks about people who were baptized by or into the name of, as it were, different individuals, and they were boasting in this. And and so they were like, well, who should we really have allegiance to? Should it be Paul? Should it be Apollos? Should it be any of these other individuals? And so Paul's, really, the the, the book of 1 Corinthians is probably the most corrective letter that you're going to find in the entire New Testament. It's written to effectively set the record straight for people who had gotten some things very wrong, uh, whether it's the issue of the resurrection, the issue of the Lord's table, whether it's the issue of spiritual gifts, whether it's a matter of sexual morality within the life of the church, all kinds of things that we would take for granted in the 21st century church. These guys were messing up big time. So as we approach verses or chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, we have to recognize what is the context that the Apostle Paul is speaking into here? Because he's speaking to a people who had confused matters spiritually uh, because they had been misinformed, mind you, misinformed by a number of teachers who had come in questioning the authority and leadership of the Apostle Paul and who had preached unorthodox messages to the church at Corinth, encouraging them in certain behaviors. So not only do you have that, um, but, but you have Paul preaching to a people who were divided uh, on on the basis of just their actions in the life of the church itself. They were acting individually. And so to that end, we might perhaps understand them a little bit more than other churches because the 21st century West, we are very individualized in how we function as Christian people, which is why, you know, go back a number of weeks, we talked about our, um, the the vowels of healthy church membership and you he's using your gifts and i think the thing that we just want to address right off the bat here that's very important to understand and the bible speaks clearly this that spiritual gifts are given for the building up of the body and as paul writes he's writing to y'all he's writing in the second person plural he's not writing to you individually he's not writing to or writing about people elsewhere. He's writing to the church. And so this is his missive to the church. And the church is to listen together to a mm-hmm. corrective and to doctrine that's going to inform its practice as a body. And yeah, that's we a go very important thing.
0: we go 1 Corinthians and we can spend some time in our Bible devotional reading with 1 Corinthians, but they were hearing this letter read aloud during yes. the gathering. And you're right. The Corrections about divisions in the church, <laughs> corrections about... Sexual morality, corrections about marriage, corrections ab- about food offered to idols, um, and you know, Paul writes chapter nine to people saying, "Here's what you should surrender. You shouldn't worry about these certain rights for the purposes of sharing the gospel." Right. Corrections about um, the Lord's Supper, and then that brings us to the spiritual gifts section, chapter twelve. 13 and 14 and and one of the reasons that it's beneficial to to talk about that as a unit 12 13 and 14 is because it it kind of seems like chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts and chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts
1: but 13 but chapter, is about a wedding isn't it chapter 13 is yeah, just it's, weddings it's right it's what you
0: read at a wedding ceremony yeah. however what Paul is doing there in the middle is is also corrective um so what we see in broad brush strokes happening in 12 13 and 14 which if if you got time to pause this podcast right now and go listen go to read the it. word yep, of the Lord or, or read it, that's going to be very beneficial. Um, that's the Lord's words rather than the words of mere mortals. But it'll also give you context to kind of see some of the particulars of what's happening. Um, you know, first off, we see that the spirit of God is giving gifts as he wills. And then uh, there's a corrective from Paul to say that that though there are different types of gifts, the different parts of the body should not look down on one another or say, I'm a hand that I wish was a foot, or I'm an eye that I wish was an ear, or because I'm an eye and you're an ear, I'm more important. So even as he discusses these gifts, he says these are not for the purpose of uh, dignity differentiation within the church, because a body needs a hand and a foot. Uh, He ends chapter 12 by saying, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed, right? So there's another, there's a priority on God's appointment, God's will. The spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. Chapter 12, verse 11. And so Paul then says, hey, not all of you are apostles, not all are prophets, not all are teachers, not all do miracles, not all do healings. And then there's a curious turn here where he switches from discussing the spirit's giving of gifts in the different members of the body and says but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. And, and there's this turn, there's some disagreement on what it means to earnestly desire the higher of higher gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some people that think that's a statement of fact. You do desire the higher gifts, yet there's a more excellent way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's there's some confusion about, well, maybe is the more excellent way the higher gift or is prophecy the higher gift? Right. Uh, there is some debate on that. However, the turn is pretty clear that in the middle of God gives gifts to whom he wills and the body should not look down on some parts and look up to other parts. Paul says that the more excellent way is love, yeah. right? It's patient love, kind love, uh, love that does not envy, love that is not arrogant. Uh, prophecies pass away, tongues will cease, but love never ends and so then that becomes not a tangent to the conversation, but the
1: point of the, the conversation. The point of it, yes, exactly.
0: Out of which Paul comes back in chapter 14 to discuss the difference between prophecy and tongues. Yep. Okay, so, so chapter 12, God has given different gifts to different folks. That does not mean some folks are better or lesser. It means Correct. the body is necessary. The body needs to love one another, chapter 13. And then chapter 14 comes with, so what should the body do as it seeks to love
1: mm-hmm.
0: one another? Um, And that's where Paul starts with pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Later on, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Why? Why? because the church may be built up. Mm -hmm. And that's where, Chris, you had said that the gifts are for the purpose of the building up of the church. So so the foundation is laid there to say, um, Paul's correction is to teach people that whatever they are doing, the purpose is the good of another person.
1: Correct. All right? Particularly within the body, the recognized body of believers.
0: Right. That's why Paul says in... Verse 19 of chapter 14, nevertheless, in church, right. I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. So, you know, we can quibble. We have another podcast about whether you should say you're going to church or not. The church is the <laughs> right. body, but not a building. And, but Paul here says there's a difference between how I act in church, in the gathered body, than I do other, in other places. Why? Because in the church, these gifts are meant for the building up of the church, Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some foundations. Any other things foundational before we should talk about what does it mean to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy?
1: Yeah. So I, what, what's you know, we had a good conversation prior to to hit and record on this here, but um,
0: we always save the good conversations for prior, and you yeah, guys get yeah, the leftovers. The
1: leftovers, the remnants. Yeah. I. So there are some controlling. Controlling, I guess, paradigm issues here that are important for us to identify. And, you know, what you just said right now, Josh, is, is certainly primary, okay, that Paul is writing this for a purpose, right? He's, he's not writing this just to give us a heads up on spiritual gifts, right? He's writing this to a church who had been viewing spiritual gifts in a certain way. And their view of spiritual gifts was largely conditioned by their insistence on personal experience and on then asserting that, that personal experience as though it is more significant than others. Right there, it's helpful for us to kind of read our own experience into it because I, I know that, um, I, I mentioned this before, previous podcast, I believe, but that you know, it's commonplace for people to take spiritual gifts inventories. and There's nothing wrong with t- taking a spiritual gifts inventory But what it unfortunately does sometimes is it gives us a degree of self-centeredness in how we interpret and understand what spiritual gifts are and what they're for. Spiritual gifts, understanding them as something that God gives sovereignly because he knows, you know, in the life of our church, Josh, we we have people who need things and we have a God who gives things. That'll preach. And so within that church, He's going to work in, in certain ways to assemble members in such a way that those needs are met. Now, whatever those needs are, I, I, I can't pretend to have an understanding of every need in our church. Like that's, there, there's, no, there's no way for me to make that determination. And that's because I'm not the one who assembles the body. right? God assembles the body. And so um, if there is a need for X, Y, or Z, then God will provide most likely through his people within that context xy or z that is to say then that understanding the nature of spiritual gifts and and what it is to desire the higher gifts is to say what is it that if if i am to ask god for the gift of whatever okay the gift of whatever the purpose of asking for that gift must be the good of others within the church. It must be the good of others. And it is not like we are prone to within our current current culture, current world. It's not to, to say, wow, I can do this. And, and this is why I just you know, want to speak a word initially to any, any friends who might be struggling with perhaps a, a background within uh, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement that say, that the initial evidence, and these are words that are you know, directly quoted effectively from like the assemblies of God and so forth, uh, the initial evidence of being what they say baptized by the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, right? And so they would say, everybody, everybody who is mature as a Christian, everybody who has the quote, fullness of the spirit must speak in these unknown languages. And that's patently false. And it's patently false for really a couple of reasons. First of all, because the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Uh, it's not a taught pattern. But secondly, because Paul says that the gifts are distributed sovereignly for the building up of the body and that the mark of genuine Christian maturity has nothing to do with the distribution of those gifts. It has to do with love. So if we were to, to write out a statement of faith that talked about the, the mark of God's maturing work we might, instead of using the gift of tongues, say, find the most loving individual in the life of the church. And there you will find a mature Christian person. So I, I think, you know, when we think about the higher gifts, we think about what is the purpose of the gifts? The purpose of the gifts is always for the good of others within the body. God gives those gifts based on what he knows the needs of that body to be. And the desire for these greater gifts, the desire for gifts that are, um, perhaps recognized as more significant, those gifts are given not for your building up, but for the building up of others. Um, so, so, and I yeah. think
0: that one way to, to bridge from what you just said to a discussion about prophecy is uh, an interesting thing you and I were just discussing is, so Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Mm-hmm. And you and I read it and go, I should be prophesying because it, I'm you. Well, someone says, talks to me, I'm you, right? Um, so Paul's saying you, Josh, should prophesy, but he's already said, verse 29 of chapter 12, are all apostles, are all prophets, right. are all teachers? And the, the answer rhetorically is no. No, of course not. So what's interesting is, is when we can take away our individualistic lens, where every you in the Bible means me, and this is where... Um, 99% of the time, your extra spiritual version translation or your needs improvement version translation is, is solid and you can really trust the, mm-hmm. the grammar of it. Um, where, where it is often hard is when the word you is used. Right. Because very, 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 very often, the word you in the Greek is a plural word. Mm-hmm. Now, in English, we don't, we, we have you and you. I speak to you, and I speak to you.
1: But we also have, from the South, the great contribution of y'all, which people think is grammatically unhelpful or incorrect. It's actually grammatically helpful.
0: Because it distinguishes between you, singular, Chris, and you, plural, the church. Correct. So what's happening in 1 Corinthians, um, the end of 1 Corinthians 12, which is you collectively desire the higher gifts, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14, you collectively desire that you may prophesy is even the, if it is a command, the command is all of you together desire something is that the for church? the body. Yes,
1: exactly. The church right? ought to desire it.
0: So that hypothetically, let's say Chris, because, you know, later on, it's going to say what only two or three people can prophesy to keep in perfect order. Is that right? Um, or is that for tongues? Tongues. Okay. So... No, no, no. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. Verse 29 of chapter 14. So let's let's say hypothetically you have five people in your church. Mm-hmm. Only two or three can speak in prophecy. But all of you are desiring that the prophet speaks because all of you want the speech because it benefits all of you. So even if Brother right. Chris prophesies and Brother Josh doesn't, Brother Josh is, is hallelujah-ing because Brother Chris is doing... Sure. What we together need. Yep. And that is a heart of the church that is saying that, you know, it was Acts chapter four, all of the needs were met, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so you can even effectively, to take it to a practical level, on Sunday, you can rejoice that we are preaching the word of God to Correct. an extent. Because the word of God is being preached for the building up of yep. the body. Um, however, all of that being said, we still haven't said.
1: What is this Chris, stuff? do people still
0: prophesy? Right? <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think at the very least, we should spend a little time thinking through, um, do we want our people to eagerly desire that they may yeah. prophesy?
1: Yeah, so I, I think what's helpful for us here, just like we did in the previous episode, it's it's helpful for us to define terms, okay? And uh, I think a couple points of clarification on these matters would be really helpful. We're really fun at parties. Yeah. We just define We like terms. to define terms. That's, that's great. First of all, um, I think it's, it's helpful for us to understand when we hear the word tongues, we automatically assume that it is a unique ecstatic experience of an individual who does not know what they are actually saying but speaking in another prayer language. And that that's somehow that's what the Bible means when it talks about tongues. That is, that is not true. Okay. Now, whether or not that might be communicated is beside the point right now. Um, because you know, I could grant if somebody wants to interpret it that way at some points, Okay, we can, we can have a discussion on that, but the word that's used is no different than it is in any other place in the, in the Greek New Testament. It's simply the word for languages. So the reason why I bring that up as a definition of terms point is that there's nothing in the text that calls for a particular interpretation of this gift uh, as though it's somehow unique, as though the gift of, quote, tongues, is the gift of tongues. It, the gift of, quote, tongues is simply the gift of other languages. And, and so, as we define our terminology here, it's helpful to look with context at the Bible as a whole. Are there other places where there is a gift of other languages demonstrated? And really the only other place we find that is the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, who was Paul's traveling companion. Spent all kinds of time with the guy. And so he observed, he witnessed what this looked like in different places they went. As they, as they went to this city or that city, he saw firsthand what it looked like for the gift of languages to be practiced. And if you look through the book of Acts, this gift of languages is set right on the beginning. There's a controlling, we'll call it controlling paradigm that is established right away at Pentecost. And that the gift of languages, because Luke doesn't need to go back and redefine time and time and time and time again what this other gift is. It was already established very clearly at the beginning. This gift of languages, which is initially given to the apostles and the disciples as they're waiting for the gift of the Spirit in a unique way uh, after the ascension of Christ, it is a gift of being able to speak the wonders of God in another known human language. So whether or not somebody wants to add to that, that can be a discussion point. But what we have to acknowledge is that this is certainly the clearest interpretation of what this word means. Languages in the Pauline context, is not necessarily ecstatic utterances that are not understood, but they are languages that are known and understood by other people, even if the speaker himself or herself does not know them, which is what happened in the case of the apostles at the day of Pentecost. So that's a definition for us to help ourselves understanding what might 1 Corinthians 12-14 through mean. The other definition is what prophecy...
0: So pause there. Just a couple... I'll anchor some of that in a couple of the passages. Uh, 14.9... if you're if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible how will anyone know what is said so then you could say well there is an intelli- an un- an unintelligible tongue but paul follows up by saying um there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning but if i do not know the meaning of the language Correct. i will be a foreigner so the the dynamic is if you speak in a language that i don't know the meaning of the language then i'm a foreigner and the speakers a foreigner Uh, to me, finishes this by saying, so if you are eager for a manifestation of the spirit, then strive to excel in building up the church. That's where he's going to go into, if you're going to speak in a tongue, it needs to be interpreted. So then that boosts the idea of language. Um,
1: And why does it need to be interpreted, Josh? I mean, just based on our previous conversation here, it needs to be interpreted because if there is a gift of a language or a gift of an interpretation, the gifts are always intended for what?
0: building up. It needs to be communicable to another person in right. order to encourage or console.
1: So Joe stands up. He speaks in a language. Other people don't understand that language. Perhaps he has something significant to share with the church. Somebody needs to interpret. Bill stands up and he's able to interpret so the others can hear. And so that Joe says something that is for the, what the building up of the body of Christ. That's what it's intended for. Not for Joe to just stand up and say, I have a spiritual moment to be realized right now, but that I'm communicating something here that's significant and others will understand this. Now again, some may say that that means he's speaking in a quote, heavenly language. And I would graciously disagree with well-meaning brothers and sisters on that point. So don't let me speak in a yeah, well, overly, a overly dogmatic um, way, but yeah.
0: What would you say? Cause you're, you're saying uh, tongues means languages. And so anything that we might say as far as ecstatic utterances is, is, it, it is in a different category, but it's called a tongue. But sure. tongues means languages. So what would you say to a brother or sister who looks at Romans 8 and says that, says that I have groanings too deep for words. And those groanings are, they're unintelligible, right? Because they're too deep for, they don't, they're not words, mm-hmm. but the spirit intercedes. And therefore, that's what's happening with a prayer language is something that is not verbal or not intelligible is interceded by the spirit.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, even charismatic commentators look at Romans 8 and they doubt that that interpretation would be accurate. So there are charismatic uh, theologians, again, well-meaning brothers and sisters, who would come to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and see ecstatic utterances who would look at Romans 8 and say, this doesn't have anything to do with, quote, the gift of tongues. And so basically what, what Romans 8, just because we, we said Jesus intercedes for his people, mm-hmm. right? We don't hear the intercession of Jesus. We don't necessarily hear the intercession of the spirit. But what we do have is that there's an intimacy that the spirit of God has with the people of God so that you can have a confidence that even though you exist in a fallen world, and sometimes you just don't know what to pray for, rest assured that the spirit who dwells within you and who knows the deepest things and deepest reaches of your heart that he himself is translating those things that you may not even be able to put into words. And how many of us have had times where we have been so miserable, let's say we've been suffering, because Romans 8 is all about suffering. It's about a fallen world and decay and how it's just things collapse and it seems like such a mess. There's a hope for the people of God. And part of that hope is that even right now, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us in ways that we don't even understand. So he is, he is, he is, it's like, you know what? I don't have the words to say right now. How many times do we say that? I just don't even know what to say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Paul is saying, I can assure you, brother, I can assure you, sister, that the spirit who searches the deep things of God, who searches the deep things of your heart, he himself is translating the things that you don't even know you need into the presence of God. So uh, that, that's the, the most common interpretation of that passage. Even charismatic commentators would suggest that that is the accurate interpretation of the passage.
0: Okay, so you wanted to define tongues? You did that? You wanted yeah. to define prophecy? Prophecy,
1: prophecy, yeah. Prophecy is a little bit more unique, <laughs> a little more unique because we do have record of different types of prophecy existing throughout the entire Bible, right? So I, I think I just want to grant at the outset here that as we define prophecy, we need to define it uh, understanding that there is a lot of ground to, to survey. We're not going to survey all that ground right now, um, but for our purposes here, we need to look at what is the point? What is the point that Paul is making about the spiritual gifts? Well, he's making the point that the most significant thing that you can offer to another believer is that you can offer to another believer something that is spoken to them for their their well being, for their good. That's a faithful carrying forth of the message of Scripture, and and so forth. Okay, so we understand prophecy is is a forthtelling of the truth of God in a way that makes for the building up of another believer. Okay. Now here's where there may be some difference. There are some people or charismatic brothers and sisters who would say that that is a direct word from God, whereas God is, is speaking authoritatively through somebody. Um, we would say that authoritative, um, authoritative speech from God ceased with the closing of the Bible, right? So as the Bible was closed, we had no need for anything else to be spoken to us as far as authoritative scripture. That being said, does God work in a way that might be impressioning, impressing upon somebody's heart something that might need to be said? And I think there is biblical warrant to suggest that's the case um, within the Reformed world where commonly people think of, well, that's just uh, cessationism. They don't think anything like that, and that's, that's simply not true. Um, you can go back to the Great Awakening period. You can go back to Spurgeon. You can go to Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can go to a number of people in my own life, things that have happened that um, would seem to suggest that God works upon people in such a way that they may understand certain things. And, and we can think, talk about things like words of knowledge and, and so forth. Um, we're going to speak specifically about prophecy here. But you know, prophecy in the, the most restricted sense of the term means authoritative language that comes from God, uh, because that is prophecy from a prophet. In the least restrictive sense, it means words that come in such a way that we might describe them as God has prompted somebody to speak something to somebody else. So those are really two different ways we can look at it. And I would say there's a continuum of sorts here. Now, I want to encourage anybody to read a rather dense work by Vern Poitras on spiritual gifts. Uh, it is V E R N, like Hey uh, Hey Vern. It's Ernest, uh, <laughs> the 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 classic actor uh, Jim Varney, Ernest P. Worrell. You may know him as so Vern, and then Poitras, P O Y T H R E S S, where he makes a very helpful distinction. We don't have time for uh, hel- helpful distinction between things like authoritative and non-authoritative. Vern
0: is a cessationist.
1: Vern would be a cessationist in some respects, um, but. If you read the article, you'll find that Verne's cessationism is much different than something somebody might understand because he gives space, biblically, biblically speaking, he gives space for certain things to occur that a perhaps more dogmatic cessationist, um, maybe someone like a John MacArthur, would not give ground for. And so um, I think this is where, you know, I, I mentioned a couple episodes back, if a cessationist were to hear you know, perhaps my view or our view on the matter, they'd say, well, you're not really a cessationist. And a continuationist or a a charismatic would say, well, you're not a continuationist or charismatic. And I think to some extent, they're both accurate because if we're using current terminology to define those things, I don't think that a strict cessationism is the most helpful. I think it's probably closer to a, a biblically faithful line of reasoning but the big problem with cessationism is that it argues from a place of silence on whether or not these supernatural gifts—if we want to call them supernatural—have ceased. Because there is no biblical warrant to suggest that. Uh, they may use a passage that says, you know, um, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away, and they would say, well, that refers to scripture. The perfect has come, and that's just not good exegesis. It really isn't. But ultimately, as as we look at these things here, we think, okay. We see great abuses take place of things that are called spiritual gifts, which is why the apostle Paul writes corrective language to the church at Corinth. He saw great abuses with things that either passed off as spiritual gifts or perhaps were spiritual gifts that were wrongly applied. And so for us, the most important thing we can really do is understand what does this actually say? And that's the task of any Bible expositor: is to say, what does the Bible actually say as it regards prophecy here? There is biblical warrant to suggest that we can use the word prophecy to relate to things that are not authoritative words from God. Um, William Perkins, 16th century Puritan author, has a book called The Art of Prophesying. It was no strange thing for a Puritan author to talk about prophesying, because the understanding of the word of prophecy or prophesying in that context was the work that perhaps a pastor does to open the word of God and apply it directly to the hearts of the people for what they need in that moment. Now, whether somebody wants to argue that that requires an immediate word from God downloaded into somebody's head, or whether that's somebody soundly handling the scriptures and soundly handling the needs of others with with something to say of a spiritual gift that might prompt them to say, well, I think this needs to be said right now. Um, That's not strict cessationism. Um, And I think what that argues is that God does still work in ways to prompt or provoke human speech to be word to be be used for words to be used so that people are built up
0: when i think if you put yourself in position to need that you'll experience it happening Correct. um because you will experience moments where you have no idea what to say and then something comes into your mind yep now we we tend to think psychologically first so we might be prone to think well something they said reminded me of this and then i said it rather than the Lord gave me this to say. Sure, Uh, I think a helpful category is just to think in terms of fallibility. Yes. Um, The reason we're going to say, not say the Lord told me to say that is because that's real close to thus say it, the Lord language. And thus say it, the Lord language is Old Testament. Authoritative. You must. Yes. Um, So some people will say, I feel like, or I sense that. And I think those are decent ways to Mm -hmm. soften the edge of the authority. But I do still think, to some degree, we want to confess that we actually believe that what we're about to say is not coming from ourselves.
1: That God that, has somehow worked yeah. in us. Yes. And so
0: I think when you're talking about prophecy and you think of it in terms of um, human speech with divine help, yeah. then you can think of, okay, well, there was a prophecy in the Old Testament that was human speech with such a degree of divine help that it was infallible. Right. Um, so when, when Peter says that no man spoke from himself, but was carried along by right. the Holy Spirit, you go, oh, that's a man speaking with divine help, but it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy the Spirit strict, picked him up. And it was infallible. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, and, and yet post uh, canon closing, post the finishing of, of revelation, we say uh, the Lord still helps human speech, Correct. but not to the same degree. Yes. And and I think that gives us an understanding. I still don't like to use the term prophecy and maybe someone would push back on that because it's in the Bible and right. and like you just said, the Puritans used it. I just think it communicates something that people immediately think of the prophecy. Because of the Maya. cultural baggage. Yeah. So um but I also think that if we're defining prophecy as human speech with divine help, then I pray for that every Sunday. Exactly. Because I I don't want to only speak my thoughts. Yeah. Now I'll say the, the two different things in regards to that. One is, um, I believe that the Lord gives me things regularly that I that come out of nowhere. I mean, there's sure. it's, it's very frequent that I'm struggling over one question in my text all week, and then Saturday when I'm writing, yeah. there's a revel- there's like a revelatory moment. Yep. Um, there are times while I am preaching that something comes out of my mouth that is better than anything I I wrote, or that, that
1: perhaps week. somebody comes up and says. I needed to hear that and you're thinking, well, I had no idea why I said that or where it came from, right?
0: Yeah. And so there are these, there are certain types of mysterious things that happen where I, I certainly believe that the Lord is at work through human speech. Um, and, but it's not random in the sense that it's just like coming out of nowhere. Oftentimes the Lord is at work to use the scriptures that he's already given us at the proper time. And so, um, you know, Colossians says that we're supposed to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another and we should also have that under our view of prophecy that as right. we're as we're praying for God to help our speech in order to encourage or build up a brother or sister in Christ or the church, that might also come from the Lord bringing a scripture to right them. exactly and and it, it came through some normal means of us spending, one, five, ten years, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, right. and at the proper time, the Lord called us back to a scripture that another brother or sister right. needed. And is that prophecy? Well, the, I'm I'm divine help for my human utterance. Yeah, um, I can't say this is the scripture that you need to change your life, but I, I'm also not going to say I just pulled this out of nowhere. Exactly, because. Uh, I've been praying for God to give me words to use. And um, so I think that's, that's, that's where I land on prophecy is uh, it continues in, in the definition of divine help with human speech. And uh, I think we should all regularly pray for God to help our speech and for God to bring to mind scriptures that we need to speak or for God to, to help us. Um, If we're any sort of wise at all, we're regularly going to be across from a brother or sister and we're not going to know what to say. right? And we have a couple options there. We're going to say nothing. Uh, we're going to say far too much. Um, or we can really say, Lord, help me help them. right? Because what they need is, they need encouragement or consolation or instruction. That's what 1 Corinthians says. For, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And then other, elsewhere, we talked about consolation and God, uh, this person has a question. Can you help me answer the question? Yeah. This person, this person is weeping. Can you help me console them? Those are really wonderful ways to think through divine aid through human speech. Yeah,
1: and I think an important qualification as well that kind of probably is is helpful, especially you know, I mean, I think we would be classified in the cessationist camp uh, by by you know, the vast majority of charismatic people we would be classified cessationists because you know there are certain certain categories of charismatic, you know, practice and belief that, that we would not necessarily subscribe to, but we're also not strict cessationists. Right. And so if we want to even break down within the cessationist world, as something people I want might to call myself
0: it, a hopeful continuationist, well, yeah, there you <laughs> go. Like a, there, there is, because there's a mystery to it, right? Correct. Um, there is, we have to go back and say the wind does blow where he wishes. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So and I think we've
0: got some guardrails and some boundaries, but the Holy Spirit does blow where he wishes. Yeah.
1: And and to, to maybe help some of our very strict cessationist friends, those who might deny any kind of supernatural activity, um, you know, I, I just want to want to suggest, first of all, that that biblically speaking, that's not true, okay? We, we, we can't look at the Bible, which thankfully um, is prized among our strict cessationist brethren as, you know, the rule, right? And so if, if, every bit of speech from somebody's mouth was only scripture all the time, then, Hey, praise God. Because that's, 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 you know, we, we want Bible How to be you spoken.
0: order at a restaurant?
1: I do yeah. not know. I do not know. Um, I, I think you can find some creative ways. I'll a um,
0: uh, year old lamb, unblemished. Yes. Cut in half. <laughs> With the entrails. And yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You keep half. You keep half.
1: <laughs> yes. But, um, Something I think it's important for us to, to also acknowledge is that um, there, there is a particular, um, I would say a particular strain of, of charismatic theology that, that becomes troubling, not because it acknowledges you know, some type of continued spirit led activity and speech, but because it suggests things like apostles and prophets are still active today. And to that end, I think we would say that you know, the Bible does make clear there are no apostles today because God gave clear, you know, to the apostles themselves, clear qualifications for who would be recognized mm-hmm. and replacing Judas.
0: Yeah, Ephesians 2 talks about the apostles laying a foundation. Yes, the foundation, the exactly. The classic right. argument is you don't lay a foundation twice.
1: Yeah, and Paul even says, you know, he was an apostle that was untimely born, effectively. So Paul was the exception. He was the unique character. And so, as as we understand, even looking back at church history, uh, it would it would be the rare and odd individual that would suggest that apostles as an office continued. That being said, uh, you look at the gifts of the apostles in terms of going and pioneering church planting works and everything. That might be called apostolic gifting, um, but certainly not. There are no apostles anymore. Just like we would say there are no more prophets, because the prophets spoke authoritatively, as you quoted from. 2 uh, Peter, that you know, God carried along these men to prophesy authoritatively, infallibly, which is why they had the role of prophet, capital P, prophet. Now, we may have those, and I would say any good pastor who preaches the word of God faithfully ign- engages in the application of the word of God to the people of God, which is what a prophet did. It's just the prophet did that authoritatively and infallibly, whereas a pastor today looks at the text of scripture and by the spirit's help, which I just really appreciate how you helpfully brought forward that, you know, that it is, it is divinely helped speech. Um, It's not infallible, but it is divinely helped. And so every week, whenever we're preparing messages.
0: And we believe, I was praying about this yesterday, help, you know, when, when the Lord says he's our helper or that he gives strong support Mm -hmm. to those whose heart is blameless toward them, help does not mean the same as like, when my kid is walking his cereal from the kitchen to the living room and I give him a 10% support on the bowl. So he doesn't drop it. Mm -hmm. Like he's still doing the lion's share of the work, but I'm just making sure nothing bad happens Mm -hmm. that, that mysteriously help is divine help. It's like a hundred percent divine help and a hundred percent human speech. Almost like the incarnation is a hundred percent God, hundred percent man. It's not, you know, all right, God, uh, Josh is smart enough to do about 95% of this. Help
1: them out with the five. (laughs) Could you just help? You know, could you swing by
0: on the way home and help? Right. No, it's something much deeper going on in that. So that God is at work in the, in the process of normal acts of reading and in the process of writing and all these different things up to the point of speaking, just like I I wish more Christians had a belief um, even in their daily devotional time that it was for the common good. Right. You know, when we look at, the, the gifts of the spirit that are for the upbuilding of the body. I sometimes think Christians would be more regularly engaged with the scriptures if they thought less about themselves mm-hmm. and they woke up and thought, if I spend every day this week pouring over and meditating on God's word, mm. someone else might need it and yeah. God can bring it to mind. Um, which is an outward focus to that and yeah. gives us an idea that God's going to work as I understand this word in order for the good of others, not just am I with my Bible in order to achieve a a personal fulfillment? But there's, because prophecy in first Corinthians 14 is for the upbuilding of the body. Then by nature, when you and I are studying the scriptures on a regular basis, we're studying for the good of others. Correct. And and that can be a practice of all Christians as they approach their Bible is maybe I don't feel like it today for me, but I'm, I'm going to study this for the good of others.
1: Yeah yeah absolutely and And so I think you know, as we kind of wind down our conversation here, um, it, it's I think the most important and helpful thing that we can do in in how we talk about these issues, spiritual gifts and so forth is to is to to see what they're for and to understand what they're not, okay? And, and by that, understand what they're not. I, I don't mean that you, know, you just push back against a particular view of, of the gifts, but it's to say this, the, the gifts given by the Holy Spirit are given for the common good. We know that to be true. It's explicitly stated in scripture. We know that spiritual gifts are not given for you in your own private time to feel personally good about yourself, right? Not, it doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, when, when I'm preparing a message and I'm exercising the the gifts God has given me to, to preach. It doesn't mean I don't feel good. It just means that the fulfillment of my feeling good is found in in how it's poured out on others. So my my spiritual gift of teaching would not be worth anything if I just taught myself, right? It, it would be-
0: Or if it, you showed up on Sunday to show how good of a teacher you
1: exactly, are. Exactly, exactly. Because uh, that that is the exact opposite of God's design. God's design is that I should show up and, and if I'm going to serve, I serve and I speak in a way that's meant for the good of others. And I speak with a kind of sobriety, recognizing, hey, I'm handling the word of God here. Uh, it's, it's a serious matter. And so I think, unfortunately, a lot of times people approach spiritual gifts as though it is a private issue. It's a private matter that, you know, spiritual gifts exist for somebody to be personally empowered. And unfortunately, it's just such a it's such a wrong-headed. 21st century Western way of viewing things. It's just not right. Frankly, it's a first century Corinthian way of doing mm-hmm. doing things. The, the whole point of Paul's corrective here is to say, guys, understand what spiritual gifts are. And even the most, what you might consider to be high and profound of spiritual gifts is only that way because it's intended for the good of the church. And so, you know, what, what is what is helpful? What is wonderful? What's well, a timely message that accords with scripture applied to the people of God? And so, however, we want to classify that. And again, I, you know, I, I'm I'm not a charismatic personally. Um, I have certain convictions that I've already, you know, mostly revealed on this matter here in this episode.
0: Totally but, revealed.
1: Yeah, totally revealed. Well, mostly We've revealed. you got you pegged. Yeah, partially, mostly, um, probably all. But you know, to a charismatic brother or sister, I just say, look, like, whatever personal conviction is on this issue, and you know, my convictions are again stated. Um, the most important thing that you can keep in view here is to say, are you using language in a way that reflects a dependence upon God to wisely engage people? You know, I can say that if, if prophecy is going to be engaged in in a way that's not authoritative, fallibly, knowing I can say wrong things, I'm not a prophet, capital P, if all those things are in place, okay, you can call it what you want. We choose not to use that word prophecy because it's loaded with a lot of different things, right? But, at the end of the day, divinely helped speech. Hey, we're all, we're all for that. Um, The important thing to understand though, is that spiritual gifts are not this other set of things. They are not there, as Paul says, an opportunity for you to build yourself up. And so anytime, you know, you think about what are spiritual gifts, and this is where I have issue with things like uh, the assemblies of God statement about, you know, the, the quote, baptism of the spirit. It's like, well, it sure seems to me that first of all, the Bible plainly says not everybody is going to do this particular thing. Okay, so spiritual gifts are not the same gift for everyone. And the great mark of Christian maturity is not the exercise of one particular spiritual gift, but the presence of love. Those are the things that you just kind of push back and say, okay, how can we rightly, helpfully in maturity understand this? And then ultimately with things that, that you know, again, we see this as a tertiary issue, just recognize that, that Christians of goodwill differ on this issue. And, you know, we we hold a particular view of this and, and our church functions a certain way in relationship to this. But it doesn't mean that we don't love our brothers and sisters and and, and you know we have dear brothers and sisters, uh, friends who who may practice these things privately that um, you know, we may differ on whether or not we believe that's a, you know, something that is a thing. But at the end of the day we just we know it's well well intended, well meaning. And uh, somebody is is seeking to draw near to Jesus in those moments. Um, we just want to encourage you, ultimately, draw near in to the, Jesus in the scriptures.
0: Romans 14 applies to more than meat sacrificed to idols. Correct. Romans 14, the one who esteems one day esteems it in honor of the Lord. And the one who esteems yep. the other day esteems it in honor of the Lord. Whether you eat or drink, drink in honor of the Lord. Exactly. You're not your own, but the Lord's. Yeah. I, we can apply that dynamic to so many things in the Christian life and say okay, you honor that and I honor this. Are we both honoring it to honor the Lord? Right. Okay, you eat and I don't. Or you drink and I don't. Yep. Do we both remember that we are not our own but the Lord's? Yeah. You know, we can, we can use that dynamic, that Romans 14 to say, yeah, I'm convinced I'm honoring the Lord in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's helpful. And then to know that, you know, maybe one of the fears in an individualistic culture is, well, if the gift is only for the upbuilding of the body, then who am I? Then what, you know, like, how do I even know what my gifting is? And I think anyone in a healthy family where the wife serves the husband and the husband serves the wife and the kids obey the parents and the parents sacrifice for the kids, mm-hmm. all of those are outward focused and yet the family becomes a vibrant. Right. And that's the purpose of the body of Christ is each of us is a hand saying, how can I benefit the body? How am I useful to the body? Yeah. Um, and then as the hand is useful to the arm and the arm is connected, all of these things connected make a, a vibrant body. Mm-hmm. And so we, in God's economy, we benefit ourselves by first seeking to benefit others. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just a beautiful way to think about, man, if I, if every single person in our church said, for the next year, I will be as outwardly focused to love the brethren as possible. Well, everyone would also be loved yes, because everyone would be outwardly focused to love. And yep. so you would still be getting the love you so desperately desire because everyone would be going, all right, First Corinthians 13, love yep. is patient, love is kind, not just for weddings, it doesn't envy, yep. it doesn't boast.
1: And that's the mark of maturity. Right. That's the mark of maturity. A mature church is a church that is filled with love. And, uh, you know, even our, our fighter verses have been doing, you know, that love be genuine. Genuine, brotherly affection. Yep. All yeah. these things that that accord with the character of Christ. And and however somebody may fall on these issues of conviction, um, it's, it's so critical. And again, I'm not a charismatic, but I love my charismatic brothers and sisters. And uh, within our own church, charismatic brothers and sisters, I love you. Uh, whatever differences we may have in this particular issue and conviction and, and, and teaching and so forth. Um, we love you. Um, I love you. And, um, we really just want to seek at all times. What's the, what's for the good of all, what's the the good of the church, the glory of Christ. And, uh, just want to encourage you to pursue that above all things and and pursue that in whatever spiritual gifts you may have and, and figure out as, as Josh, you just alluded to, I think you figure out your spiritual gifts in community. You figure them out as you are serving, as you are loving, you find out maybe I'm not super fruitful in, in, in how I uh, administrate things, right? Maybe you find out you're super fruitful and just be merciful to other people. And there's just this added measure of, wow, this seems to really be enabled by the Lord. You're only gonna find that out if you're trying and exercising and realizing that uh, the end goal of all this, good of the church, the glory of Christ, and that's what the gifts are for.
0: Amen. Good of the church, glory of Christ. That was another fifty-five plus episode. Yeah, oh, well, man. we're hitting—we're getting good at hitting that threshold. Maybe that's a
1: it's a good car ride somewhere.
0: Intentionally do some like twenty-one-minute episodes just to bring us back to normal. No, we—these were uh, the last three in particular, as we're seeking to honor the Holy Spirit in mm-hmm. discussing who He is, and then seeking to honor one another as we discuss some of these different terms and for the good
1: of the church. Yeah, and the glory of Christ.
0: Right. So we were. I think it warranted this one, but uh, maybe we'll get back to that 35-minute range here soon.
1: We gotta eat some lunch.
0: Yeah, thanks for thanks for z- devoting some time to think with us.